feel like that's it. We're going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We started series from this passage last week. Well, we'll definitely be in it for the next couple of Sundays, including today and next weekend, and we'll see how we go from there. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And uh, as we established last week, but if you weren't here, this passage is talking to us of how the nation of Israel wandered through the wilderness after God brought them out of bondage in the nation of Egypt and some of the things that took place there and how when they passed through the Red Sea and they were under a pillar of cloud, it was a type of baptism. That's why it says that they, they passed through the sea. And verse 6 says, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters or idol worshippers, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples or examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Amen. And our series at the moment is called Lessons from the Wilderness. Amen. Let's just pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word together, that you'd anoint me as your vessel, that you'd open our hearts to receive those things, that you would speak to us. Lord God, you care about each one of us individually. And you are able, Lord, to speak to us all at the same time. I pray, Lord, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we taught of how the Apostle Paul drew a connection between the Israelites in the book of Exodus and the Gentiles or the the people that weren't Jews in the New Testament church. It was not a natural connection in any way. People were of different ethnicity, different culture, even different geographical locations. But it was a spiritual connection or example that was based upon the people's relationship with God. And Paul wrote that the experiences and especially the shortcomings of the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness were for an example for the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago. Corinth was in ancient Greece, but they were also an example for us today by extension because we are part of the same New Testament church that the Corinthians were. And we are given these examples because, as we just read, we live in the last days. And they are for our admonition, or we are to be admonished, which means urged and can even mean to be reprimanded. Anybody enjoy being reprimanded? No, we don't. But the Word of God reprimands us sometimes. In fact, when you read in the epistles to Timothy, when Paul wrote to the young man, he spoke of four things that the purpose of the scripture was for, was for instruction, correction, 
Two of them were positive, but there were two that were, we don't like being corrected. We don't like being instructed, but the Word of God is there for that purpose. And because of these examples, we are to be very careful that if we think that we are not capable of making similar errors, to take care that we do not fall. The first warning that we went through last week was the account of when the people began to complain about the manna, the food that God miraculously provided for them every day. They, they began to openly long for the food of Egypt, where they'd been delivered from, having very quickly forgotten the terrible suffering that was also a part of that Egyptian experience. And the sobering message for us from last week's lesson was that if we allow our hearts to desire the things that God has delivered us from, He may actually grant those desires. And we will die spiritually in the graves of our own lust. There was a place they passed through in last week's lesson called Kibroth Hata'ava, which means the graves of those that lusted. We read, and we're going to read it again this morning from Psalm 106, verses 14 and 15, describing the Israelites. It said, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They didn't just say they just had a moment of temptation. They were overcome with those desires in the wilderness, and they tempted God in the desert, and he gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul so just to reflect on last week's lesson the pursuit of fleshly appetites caused their souls or their spiritual life to waste away amen so moving on in this passage the next admonition that we want to consider is found in first corinthians 10 and verse 7 where it says neither be ye idolaters or idol worshippers as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So before we consider the actual circumstances that this verse refers to, because each one of these warnings actually refers to something that took place, I want us to consider the idea of idolatry first. I taught on this last year a little bit and I uh, just feel like it's worth revisiting as a part of this series. But the, the big question is why is idolatry such an issue with God? Why is it so important to God? Why is God speak so strongly against it? Because when you stop and think about it, there are many things that people do as sinners that God is not pleased with. There's a lot of things that the Bible talks to us about that don't please God. And yet idolatry is something that God goes out of his way to specifically address. He, he does it even as a part of, you know, you think if, if you and I were writing the Ten Commandments, we think, okay, which are the real which are the top 10 that need to fit on this list and in exodus chapter 20 and verses 1 to 4 it says and god spake all these words saying i am the lord thy god which have brought thee out of the land of egypt out of the house of bondage speaking to these jews that were in the wilderness and we could say that he is our lord who brought us out of sin and addiction and whatever bondage that we were under and then in verse 3 he said thou shalt have no other gods before me then in verse 4 it says, Thou shalt make, not make unto thee any graven image, that's a, a, a statue or an image that was carved or molded, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. Now, I might have thought in my natural reasoning that when verse 3 said, don't have any other gods, that that would have covered it. But the Lord went on in verse 4 to emphasize no images. No visible representation of anything that you might be drawn towards worshipping. And if you read in your own time in Deuteronomy, I think it's about chapter 4, it's not on my slides, 
But it tells us that when people make an idol, that they corrupt themselves. They corrupt themselves. And instead of being his image, what happens is we fashion an image after our own design and our own choosing and then begin to worship that. And even though mankind has done some terrible things in the worship of idols, and if you study that in the Old Testament, you'll see all manner of wickedness and and child sacrifice and all kinds of horrific things that people did as a part of the worshiping of idols. One of the main attractions to idolatry is the fact that when you have an idol, particularly if you are the creator of that idol, you get to decide what the rules are. You get to decide how it's worshipped, what is allowed and what is not allowed. When one of the most commonly referenced idols in the Old Testament is is Baal, B-A-A-L. And when Baal worship began at some point in history, somebody had to decide, probably with assistance from the devil, what the rules were, how they would approach that idol, what their behavior would be that would be acceptable, and, and what the rules would be. And that's why the Bible tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. Because the difference between obedience and sacrifice is that sacrifice is when I choose what I do. Obedience is when I choose to do what he says to do. There were some very serious commitments and worship to idol amongst idol worshippers, but it was of their own doing. Whereas when we read the word of God, we are to do what God says that we should do. Idolatry is another way that mankind rejects God as his ruler and perverts the image that he was designed to reflect. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but just uh, in the first three chapters of Genesis, again, this isn't on the slides because I'm just going to pick out some points. There's a lot of emphasis in the creation period of man being the image of God. Genesis 1, around about verse 26, says, let us make man in our image. Now, A lot of people will point at the use of the word us there to say that there are multiple persons that make up God. But the problem with that, apart from the fact it's not biblical, is that no matter how you slice and dice that and try to look at that, when God made that image, there was only one man. He made one man as his image. He didn't make three atoms. He made one atom. That was a singular image of a God that is a singular God. Amen. But then when we move on into chapter 2, Adam's busy doing what the Lord told him to do. He's naming all the animals. He's taking care of things. And the Lord says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. So God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep, takes a rib from his side and fashions Eve from Adam's rib, gives him a companion. And in, verse, in chapter 2 of Genesis, it lets us know that they were naked, but they weren't ashamed. They weren't ashamed. Because in that state where they had no sin... They were in a perfect reflection of the image of God. There wasn't even, if you think about that reflection like a mirror, there wasn't even so much as a smudge on the mirror. You know, you ladies, when you clean your bathrooms, you wonder how in the world do all these marks and stuff get on the mirrors? There was no interference with the image. It was perfect, and they were unashamed. But then they sinned in chapter 3, and they suddenly knew that they were naked. What's interesting is they weren't any more naked than they were in chapter 2. But their understanding had changed. And now their focus became on how they saw themselves rather than how they saw God. 
because they saw their nakedness, they felt shame, they tried to address that and provide a covering for themselves by themselves, which we know was not acceptable in the sight of God because when they, when they sinned and they added sin to the, to the human nature, they added something to the image that was not meant to be there. And it caused that image to become distorted, to become warped. And one of the easiest examples I like to use is those funny mirrors that you see when you go to the royal show or you go to a circus and you go in and there's a mirror that's the same height as you are, but it has curves in it. And so you're normally three and a half foot long legs are eight feet long or they'll go the other way and your legs are only six inches long because the mirror is warped. And so the reflection, the image is imperfect. God made us to be his image to be his reflection and if you we read in romans chapter 1 this is in the slides romans 1 from verse 21 speaking of humanity it says because that when they knew god they glorified him not as god neither were thankful but became vain or empty or puffed up in their own imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened god is light when you read about darkness scripturally it's nearly always talking about things that are not of god Not always, but most of the time. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God or a God who cannot change. They changed the glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. You read the Old Testament, there's all different kinds of idols. Baal is often represented as 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 a young bull. Uh, the Philistines worshipped an idol by the name of Dagon, D-A-G-O-N, that was half man, half fish. They had all these weird things that they decided they would worship instead of God. But what is interesting in this passage in Romans, in verse 23, it says, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. You and I cannot change God's glory. We can't reduce His majesty. We can't make Him any less holy, any less powerful any less magnificent than he is. He, we, he is not dependent upon us. He is holy. The Bible says he does not change. So what does that expression mean when it says they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God? What it means is we were designed, created to reflect that glory back to him. So when it says that we changed it, it means that we turned, if, if you can imagine yourself as a mirror, as a reflective surface, we turned that reflective surface away from God began to reflect something other than God and no longer reflected the glory of God. And so what we began, sinful humanity began to represent had nothing to do with God. But we know that Jesus was manifest. Jesus came to make a way for us to begin to return to the original image that God designed us to be. A few scriptures on that. John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. How could we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Because he was the perfect reflection. There was no sin in him. There were no smudges on that mirror. It wasn't warped in any way. It wasn't reflecting anything that it shouldn't have been. It was a perfect reflection. Colossians 1 and 15, speaking of Jesus again, says, Who is the image of the invisible God? the firstborn of every creature. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, again speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express, it's not speaking about fast, it's speaking about exact and precise 
image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So redemption and restoration is the process of buying us back. Jesus paid a price to buy us back and then he transforms us into the image that God wants us to be. Again, on this same idea, in John chapter 17, Jesus is coming toward the end of his earthly ministry. Calvary is is pressing close and he's praying for the disciples that God has given him. He's in a time of prayer and in John 17 and 22, it says, and Jesus praying said, and the glory which thou gavest me have I given them that they may be one even as we are one. Again, when it said that Jesus gave them glory, it's not suggesting that he was saying they should be worshipped, that he wanted people to worship the disciples, but rather he was saying as he had been the image of God to this world, so should they be the image of God to the world in which they were. So being born again makes it possible to begin to reflect Jesus the way that we were created to, that image. So this is, this is why idolatry is such an issue. So the circumstances, we, the circumstances that actually referred, sorry, let me say that again. We read from 1 Corinthians 10, 7. Now this is what it was actually referring to. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1. It says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, or from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together under Aaron and said unto him, Get up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this man Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be, the, and, and they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. So Moses, Moses is up on the mountain with God. He's been up there a while. Seems he may have been going up and down a little bit, but he'd been up there a while. The people were starting to wonder where he was. It's quite amazing when he was down on the ground they complained about him when he was away they worried that he wasn't coming back human nature but he was Moses was on the mountain receiving instructions from God for the tabernacle that we've learned about recently for how they would worship God and the people thought well he's taken a while we're starting to feel a bit insecure and so they convinced Aaron to make them what the Bible calls a golden calf it was probably more like a young bull And some of us know this passage well, but what really caught my attention when I was studying this passage was verses 5 and 6. I want to read that again. It says, And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. People sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. The Bible says that it was... on the tomorrow that it was a feast to the lord now the word lord in english can be used to talk about god himself can be used to talk about false gods can be used to talk about people in authority in the the uk and england they they still have lords and ladies at least figuratively speaking 
But if you have a King James Bible, wherever you see the word Lord written in all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is not just a general term. It is always speaking specifically about God himself, the creator of the universe, Jehovah. It's not just a loose general term. It is a specific reference to God. And then in verse 6, it says, They offered sacrifices and ate and drank and rose up to play. Now that, that rose up to play is not talking about games or sport, but most commentators uh, imp- suggest that that's implying a moral behavior. A moral behavior. So it wasn't this idol that Aaron had built, it wasn't simply that it had been fashioned an idol out of gold, but now what was happening was they were combining it and they were introducing it into their worship of the one true God. They, they said, there's a feast to God tomorrow. They didn't cancel that. But somehow in the midst of that, they blended those two ideas. They brought the idol into what was supposed to be something that only belonged to God himself. Now, scripturally speaking, hopefully I haven't lost anybody other than myself. Scripturally speaking, we are not only to reflect Jesus, but the Bible describes the church as being his bride as being the bride of Christ. We often make statements along the lines of how true Christianity is about relationship, not religion. And that's absolutely true. But what happens with idolatry is that it brings something or someone into a relationship that is not meant to be there. That's what happens when we commit idolatry. It promotes either a change of affection and commitment or a sharing of that affection and commitment. And if you know anything about God, the Bible makes it very clear that God is a jealous God. Now, jealousy amongst humanity is always a negative thing. But when God says that he's jealous, what he means is, I have the right to be the only one you worship. I not only made you, I saved you. So I'm not interested in sharing airtime with anybody else. He is a jealous God and has the right to be that way. And so the Israelites, when they participated in idol worship, We're adding something to a relationship that wasn't supposed to be there. And what that did was it began to distort the image and introduce behavior and conduct that was against the word of God. Amen. In our church here, we have a rich collection of cultural backgrounds in our church family, which we really love to have. And among our cultures, among our various backgrounds, there's all different spiritual experiences. Some possibly even have some forms of idol worship in their history, if not current, but possibly in the past. But the admonition here for us in the church today is not so much a warning about statues of golden calves or the gods that they used to worship back in ancient Corinth. As a pastor, I'm very rarely concerned that somebody has a grove of trees in their backyard with a statue in it. Never had to deal with that issue yet. Don't imagine it's ever going to happen. So we're not just talking about golden calves or half man, half fish gods, but what what we are talking about is our primary concern, remembering that the warning is for us today, is that we do not share our affection, our commitment, and our worship with God with anything else that does not belong in that relationship. That's the form of idolatry we have to be so very, very careful about today. What is it that comes before God in our lives? What is it that competes with Jesus for our time, our talent, and our treasure? 
Now, that doesn't mean, well, pastor said, you know, I've got to give up my job. I can't have a family. I can't have any of these things in my life. No, 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 no. A family is a God idea. Working and supporting your family is also a God idea, just in case anybody was getting excited about quitting their job on Monday morning. Those things are of God in their place. It's when they compete with God or they are elevated above God that they become idols. Amen. And we need to be careful about the things that compete for our time, our talent, and our treasure. Two of the best decisions, and if you are new with us at the moment, please pay attention to this. Two of the best decisions that you can ever make in your life after you decide to be born again. That's the first decision. That, that's where it's got to start. But once you're born again of war and spirit, the two, two very, very important decisions are that, firstly, I am going to begin every day with Jesus. I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to spend time in the Word. That's relationship with Jesus. The second thing is that I'm going to do everything I can to be in the house of God at every opportunity because that's relationship with Jesus as a part of his body. God has set it up that those two would work together. If you don't have time with Jesus privately and you just come to church, you're lacking. If you just have time with Jesus but you don't spend time with his body, you're also lacking. So if you can make those two decisions at the beginning of your walk with God, in time you will look back and see the fruit of that. Amen. I've taught this many times and will continue to do so because God has ordained that his people should gather together. That's, again, like family and working to provide for your family. That is a God concept. He has told us that we should gather together. He's actually told us that as his return gets closer that we should do it more than we used to. That's what the Bible says. If it is a God-ordained idea, that means that there are things that God wants to do. There are things that God desires to do, that he designs to do, that only happen when his people gather together. Otherwise, what would be the point? There must, if God wants us to gather together, there must be a purpose. And we understand that there is a purpose. If you've walked with God for any length of time, you know how important it is to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to worship together, to pray together, to hear the word of God together. All of those things matter. Amen. Not only that, but faithfulness to the house of God is directly connected with us being able to function as a part of the body of Christ. If every one of us is a part of his body, that means that we fit somewhere in that body. Like your natural body, you have a purpose. But if you're not regularly connected to that body, it's going to be very hard to establish and function in that purpose. I have no desire to upset anybody this morning, but we are living in an era. We are living in a time when people skip attending the house of God for the softest reasons. The softest reasons. Now, I know I'm instantly going to, well, Pastor, what about this and what about that? Let me understand. I'll clarify that in a moment. But the era, the era in which we live, people miss church for very soft reasons. And it's not a coincidence that it also happens to be the weakest generation when it comes to being established in the Word of God. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The more you connect with the book, the deeper the roots go. You connect with the book by personal time in the Word of God. You connect with the Word of God by sitting under the ministry of the Word of God, the preaching and the teaching. God has said that it is those things that save our souls. 
And so it is important. And it can go a little bit quiet. That's okay. I'm, I'm not bothered by that. I, I'm not unreasonable. I reckon if you're sick, please don't come to church. If you're at home throwing up all night, please don't drag yourself and your bucket in the church. We will send you home. I recognize sometimes that work interferes with things. I get that. We have shift workers here. We have people that do fly-in, fly-out work. I, I understand all of that. But many times we are simply too busy to be in God's house. And that's not a good thing. Amen. Amen. Our image that we are trying to reflect of God is corrected by looking into the mirror of the Word of God. That's what the book of James says. It says that he that looks into the Word of God is like a man that looks into a mirror. He said, but if we don't do the Word, then nothing changes. But if we're not sitting under the preaching and teaching, we're not even looking in the mirror as much as we should be. I mean, it's one thing to hear it and to go away and ignore it, but if you haven't even heard it, you can't even get to the point of ignoring it. Amen. Bless the Lord. The less you hear the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, the less you'll be aware of the need you have to change, the need that we have to change. That's that's Bible. And if you are a young saint, make a decision to commit to those things and watch God bless you. Amen. I don't want to embarrass anybody this morning, but a couple of years ago, we were preparing for men's camp, Western Australian men's camp. It might have been last year, might have been the year before, I don't remember. Now, Brother Moses, some of you will know, is a pretty talented soccer player, plays a bit of soccer. And the grand final was on during men's camp weekend. I didn't know. Brother Moses never came to me and said, well, you know, Pastor, I, I know we you know, men's camp's up and I want to be there, but hey, you know. I had no idea. I got an email from the president of the soccer club <laughs> telling me how much they needed Moses and would I please release him for the afternoon. It was the first thing I ever heard about the soccer grand final. <laughs> and I had to write back and say, uh, that's not even up to me. I didn't tie him up or tell him he couldn't go. That was a personal commitment to being where God wanted him to be. And again, not wanting to embarrass Brother Moses, but when you make those decisions to make those priorities. Here's a question. I believe, this is not a question, this is a statement first, then there's a question. I believe Jesus is coming back very soon. I believe he's coming back very, very soon. But if it's a little longer than we think, what will the following generation be like from our example of commitment to the house of God? What will the next generation be like? I know where I get my example from, but the next generation is going to follow our lead. What will their commitment look like? Well, pastor, you don't ha- um, if you miss church, you won't be lost. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you make choices, again, let's talk about, those th- let's talk about work. We've all got to work. But if you choose a job that you know is going to eliminate most of your attendance to the house of God, that's a, that's a wrong priority. If you choose to elevate things that have to happen in your family, well, my kids want to play football. You know, I've got to go and visit my dad. He's not well. I mean, I I get all of that, but there are seven days in a week. Why is it only when search is on? We need to be smarter than that. Amen. Amen. There are things that if we allow them, we'll compete with our commitment to God and to his house, and they they will make sense if we let them. Amen. So much 
of Israel's spiritual and natural history was compromised by the coexistence of idols and the worship of God. It wasn't always necessarily one or the other. So often you read of how a king would come along and he'd sort of clean up some of the idol worship, but he wouldn't do the whole job. And so they were still having church, but they were still worshiping idols. And, and that is the risk for us. Again, I'm, you know, I'm not worried about golden statues. It is the introduction of things that compromise our relationship that are present-day Western world idols. Anything we elevate above our commitment to God is an idol. Amen. That's the admonition for the church in the last days, what coexists in our lives with Jesus. Before we finish this lesson, I'm just about done. The next verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And if, if, if that's a little strong, what I've said about those commitments, uh, my intention is not to offend. I don't particularly need people to come and say, well, what about this and what about that? That's between you and the Lord. You've got to make that decision where God wants you to be at. But there's very rarely a time that God's going to say, I'd prefer you didn't go to church. Very rare. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. says, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Israel's idolatry, and actually most forms of idolatry in the Old Testament, or even in the New Testament, was almost always connected to immorality. Now, Fornication is the word that is used there in verse 8. If you're not familiar with that word, fornication in a general sense includes any sexual activity outside of that between a married man and a woman. Whether it's extramarital affairs, whether it's people being intimate that aren't married, whether it's same-sex relationships, whatever, it all comes under the heading of fornication. And it's all wrong in the sight of God. Amen. And we need to understand that. Immoral conduct has devastating consequences. It destroys lives, marriages, families, churches, and nations. Do a little bit of history if you want. Have, have a look at the, some of the kingdoms in history like Rome. When Rome began to crumble, probably don't read too much of it because it's pretty graphic, but some of the, the things that were in their society, their morals, which were never great to start with, fell further and further and further. And the thing about immoral conduct is the damage can be very difficult to repair. Verse 8 here in 1 Corinthians refers to an Old Testament situation, which we're not going to read through, but you can read yourselves in Numbers chapter 25, where again, immorality and idolatry worked hand in hand. There is always, almost always, a connection between those two. And in both examples, both the warnings that we are given... In verses 7 and 8, the, the warnings against idolatry, the warnings against fornication, in both of those Old Testament examples, so you've got Exodus 32, I believe it was, in Numbers chapter 25, there were thousands of people that lost their lives. Thousands of people that God judged because of their sin. That's worth taking notice of. When we bring things into our relationship with God, that should not be there. You, you split your focus, you split your energy, you split your commitment. Something's got to give. In Acts chapter 2, this is my last verse, and we're going to bring this to a close. 
On the day of Pentecost, it says this. It says, and they, verse 46, Acts 2, 46, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. It's not talking about their marital status. It's talking about the fact that one thing mattered more than anything else, and that was Jesus and what he wanted for them. Let's stand together this morning. Remembering that these things are written for our example that we might take heed. Amen.